Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Welcome to Live With here on uh, Star Wars Day, May 4th. And of course our guest tonight, Alan Vizzuti. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna get to Alan in just a second, but I wanna take care of some housekeeping business and of course recognize Trent Austin and Austin Custom Brass for sponsoring uh, this month's interviews again. Of course, uh, ACB did last month. Uh, he's gonna sponsor this month and on into June. So thank you, Trent. Uh, Alan, have you had experience with Trent and Austin Custom, Custom Brass? Actually, no. Well, you know what? You need, we need to set up a relationship between you and, and Trent. Okay. <laughs> so, Sounds good. But, uh, Trent's a great guy. And of course, everybody there at ACB, uh, the service is great. The products they've got are great. And uh, uh, Trent does a great job of social media of getting out there and promoting his business but he's got so many vintage instruments that come through his shop and he plays and shows off every one of them and it's it's great and he's a great player on top of it so you know mm -hmm, bonus mm -hmm. so thank you trent uh, of course uh, you can find out more by going to austincustombrass.biz that's dot b-i-z <clears throat> i want to let you know too that if you want to follow studio hfl where you truly do hear from legends and we have one with us tonight uh, you can do that, of course, uh, at StudioHFL.com. You can do that on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook at StudioHFL. Uh, if you go to StudioHFL web, uh, web page, you can sign up for the newsletter. Of course, you can shop for merchandise. In fact, uh, this, new, this new merchandise we've got, uh, this World Trumpet Force <laughs> shirt, right? And did I, did I tell you what Ventilabis uh, Magis translates? It, it's blow harder. Oh, how perfect. Yeah, right? I mean, if, if a trumpet player needed a motto, uh, there, <laughs> there it is right there. So we've got that one. And then my wife came up with this design right here. I think this is, might be my favorite. Uh, it says, we will not be silenced. She she <laughs> made that logo with that mute there. I, I love that. So we've got Did both of those. Did she stylize your picture? Uh, what do you mean by stylized? Well, you know, a stylist at a, at a photo shoot or at a commercial photo shoot tells you what to do, kind of. No, I, actually, that was down in our, in our music room downstairs, and uh, I, I kind of photoshopped the background out of it, and <laughs> it's amazing what you uh, can do, Your right? shirt might be too tight. <laughs> uh, well, it might have been. Uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Oh, we've got one more here. Um, oh, yeah. So May. I got to show you what's up for May. Of course, Alan, you're here tonight. Guess who's here next week? Mary Elizabeth Bowden. Ooh. That's that is going to be. Uh, I tell you what, May's May's a great lineup. We've got you. We've got Mary. Uh, let's see. After that, of course, we've got uh, a guy who who can barely play above high C. Uh, Wayne Bergeron. <laughs> you know, of course, uh, that's going to be fun. And and right after that, now I have never met this guy before, but I have heard wonderful things about Bijan Watson. Uh, really looking forward to talking. Yeah. to him at the end of the Good month lineup. so yeah thank you um yeah so i'm really looking forward to to talking to everybody uh let's see what else have i got down here uh oh of course uh the regular podcast releases um hunter everly's interview came out uh, a couple days ago so now that is available uh hunter's uh principal trumpet with the detroit symphony orchestra and uh, that's a great interview uh, of course, on the radio show, Thursday nights at 8 p.m., uh, have turned some pre-existing interviews into 
a radio show where I'm able to incorporate music. And last week and this week, it was a two-parter. I chose Mike Williams. Mike was the 31-year lead trumpet player with, well, he wasn't 31 years old. He was with Count Basie for 31 years. Um, just a great interview. And if anybody knows Mike Williams, you know he's he's a character. Uh, and that Louisiana accent uh, makes his <laughs> makes this interview easy to listen to. So check nice. that out. Of course, uh, Thursday nights, WICR 88.7 FM, The Diamond. Uh, I'm getting pretty good at, at, you know, the radio kind of thing, I, I think. So you're in your groove. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's all the business I needed to take care of. So, Alan, may the fourth be with you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So I, uh, of course, welcome. Uh, you know, I looked to see when I first interviewed you. It was May 14th of last year. It's been almost okay. a year. Almost exactly. Oh, I didn't and, know that, but yeah, I remember. And then, uh, of course, you and I spoke, uh, what, uh, maybe four or five, mm -hmm. six weeks ago uh, uh, about Vinny. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, hard to believe it's been a year. So here's, here's the first uh, really important question. Where were you? Where did you first see Star Wars? I was on the road and I went to it with Nelson Hat. I was on the road with Woody Herman, so it was 1977, right? Philadelphia. You were in Philly. Yeah, which I, have, I uh, wouldn't have a lot of reason to be there if it weren't for gigging, actually, because, you know, actually I had relatives in Wilmington, come to think of it, which is close. But yeah, I remember Nelson Hat telling me about this crazy new George Lucas thing and we should check it out. And we had a day to do it, which was kind of unusual, actually. And I remember going with him, yeah. Were you as blown away uh, like everybody else? Well, pretty much. I mean, not only was it just a unique um, comic book-like thing in a way, but it was, um, they were using that, all the, the technologies were new, you know. It wasn't that long before that movie that they couldn't do 3D shots on, on a computer or anything. It was all, it had to be models. And I'm, I'm not a movie maker, so I don't know all the jargon and the tech, and the tech but... Um, there was innovative tech there for sure. And it, well, of course it continued through all the movies, but yeah, it was really interesting. I, I thought, I remember thinking that I was kind of into movies like uh, <clears throat> a little more serious sort of even science fiction, but the, the heavier weight stuff. Mm. And this was for the whole family, right? And so I remember when, when uh, I guess it was a few years later, E.T. came out. Yeah, yeah, quite a few years later. But I remember the, the kind of light side of it. Um, I wondered, I actually wondered if it would succeed. There you go. Really? That tells the whole story of my business. Hand. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing you, right. you, you stuck to trumpet, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of like banging your head, isn't it? Yeah. So do you yeah, remember right. what you paid for a movie ticket back in 1977? No, I don't. Probably five bucks or something. Oh, I think it was less than that. Yeah, it could be. I don't uh, it was like three bucks, if I remember. You mentioned E.T. I have to tell you, uh, I think that was 1983 that came out. And I, I double dated to, and actually, the, that's not correct. I took two girls to see E.T. That's kind of a double. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I, I, I'm just, I look back and I think, uh, man, you know, I've, well, my wife is sitting in the room here. I guess I can't say too much right now, but she already knows that story. So she knows the stuff and understands. Yeah. <laughs> you had a little ego trip, and now it's back to reality, yeah, dude. Exactly, exactly. So, exactly. and we're celebrating 25 years this year. So, you know, things have worked out really well. 
Congrats, so, congrats. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And she is a, a wonderful musician too, violinist. Like I know uh, you've, you're married to a wonderful musician as well, right? Yes, uh, yes, yes, Laura. She's, uh, we're on our 34th year. 34. Congratulations. In a, in a few days, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Numbers that I never thought I would even think about in terms of, you know, I remember the first time I said something like, oh, that was 20 years ago. And it hit me like a ton of, ton of bricks that that point of reference, you're getting old enough. So you have that point of reference. Right. Just, oh, yeah. 20 years ago. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but that's hey, life. Well, you know, it's interesting. Somebody just posted recently um, Fire Dance. Uh, was it 77 and then I, I don't know what the most recent was did you see that side by side i did but i didn't listen to it uh, um it was almost like the same person <laughs> yeah right well you know, know which it, performance the the newer one was because there are quite a few and some are some are with excellent groups some are with weaker groups some are my performances are better than others of course and then um there's one that i did in a studio with a group of 10 trumpets and rhythm section and it could have been that one i don't know oh but that one sounds pretty good because it's all produced and um, right. uh, the quality of the recording is high. Right. Yeah. Um, you looked so young <laughs> in that early one. <laughs> it's you starting talk... to hurt. It's starting to hurt yeah. a little bit. But the truth be told, that's, that's what happens. Yeah. That's why I have this blinding background here and a soft focus on the front. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't feel old, do you? No, not really. No. Isn't it funny, you know, uh, when we're kids, we look at people our age. Uh, and I'll be 55 this week, you know, I, uh -huh. and I, I don't, I don't feel it, not even close. Yeah. Well, that's the way you got to have that attitude. I mean, it can be a little tricky sometimes, but you know, without going deeply into this, it's a good perspective to people, for people to have about, you know, doing the right thing, being nice, picking your battles, having some compassion, having some empathy, because it goes by quickly. And when you get to my age, you start losing some close friends. I mean, you know, look at the trumpet case behind you. Cancer blows, Ryan Anthony. Right. These, these, Chris Vidala, the great sax player, is a close oh. friend of mine. And, you know, there's a list, and some are very, very tragic. Um, as opposed to, say, my dad who died at 97, was a wonderful man and taught me to play. I call it a, a very sad time, but not really a tragedy sort right. of thing. Um, so, but keeping that perspective, don't let it depress you. But... Try to keep your foot in the, I mean, you know, your head in the right place and you can, right. it's also motivating. You know, I practice, I really want to practice still. And I, I've been talking to Doc Severinsen recently a bit and he's still practicing his tail off too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he just started the, uh, the Tebow routine a couple months ago. He likes to try everything. Right. Take what works for him, which yeah. is a great lesson for all the drummer players too. Take what works for you. You don't have to swallow the whole pill right. of whatever method or book it is. Yes, he's fabulous, and um, I, it's a, he's a great example, as was Snooky Young, for instance, who played mm -hmm. great until the, till he got whatever you call the end, you know? I, I still, you know, you, you go online and you look up Doc's videos, but I end up looking for Snooky uh, or any time Clark Terry had been on The Tonight Show, and then oh I start, and, you know, and then you go down the rabbit hole of, of watching all the Clark Terry videos. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know, oh my gosh, what, what amazing players. Uh, we can... uh, well, that, yeah, that's such an epic understatement, isn't it? And their individuality is one thing that makes them greater than great. Mm -hmm. And without that, we would be a mess, to be honest with you. The individuality. Um, can I go on on this? Absolutely. Way? Yeah. Well, you know, with the COVID deal and all the Internet activity, and then I, I like others have gotten more involved with Instagram and YouTube and things like that. And it's fun. And I like 
in quotations producing these videos and things that I do, um, you also come across some amazing players you never heard of or you should have heard of and didn't or mm -hmm. you, no one's heard of, of all ilks, females, males, kids who are just playing their literal <laughs> behinds off in different and they have their different aspects of uh, direction you can see happening right. um, in terms of jazz or classical, but also in styles within those designations. And um, for instance, Lewis, is it Loudonson? Is that his name in England? You can oh, uh, Louis Dowdswell. Dowd yeah, I'm so sorry, Dowdswell. I, I had heard of him and stuff, but I hadn't researched and I just listened to some of his stuff. And he and Wayne Bergeron are real good friends yeah. and Wayne is kind of, um, I don't know if he's mentored him, but he's, he's brought, he, he's had him do some gigs and things. Yep. This kid can play, man. Right. In that genre, he can probably do a lot more than you see on the videos, but in that genre, I mean, almost untouchable. The beautiful, beautiful sound with such a range and all that. You know, I interviewed him. His has not come out yet. Uh, mm. And what a humble guy, you know, for somebody as young and talented. Yeah, see, I haven't met him yet, so that's good to hear. Yeah, he's, uh, he's terrific. And yeah, Wayne was telling me about him. You know, he has mentored him. But, and when Wayne got sick, uh, Louis took some of, the, some of those gigs. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Right. I was um, in that circle a little bit and, and was trying to help a little bit. But yeah, I, I knew what was going on there when Wayne got sick. And um, um, he, uh, um, he's not only the powerful, beautiful, smooth. It's as if his upper register is just an octave lower when he plays it. But um, he's also a great jazz player. I mean, Latin oh, yeah. jazz stuff. Really cool notes and good choices. So is Wayne. I mean, it's, they're not clones. But that brings me back to my, to my earlier comment about the uniqueness of each individual. Really starts to designate um, whether you get found well, whether you kind of have a bigger career or not. I mean, if you're just a a high note producer, for instance, or a boring fast note mixed with high note jazz player, there are limits to where you're going to go with that. You know. If you are not the most chop-oriented person and you play the coolest, sexiest jazz or the most beautiful Haydn in the world, you're going to go somewhere, you know? And th that's a nice perspective to have. It's also a relief because we can't all do everything. You just can't. You know, it was not all that long ago that I kind of realized uh, there are people who are meant to do what Sergei does. There are people like you who are meant to do what you do. So I should find what I do and just do it really well, right? Not try to, of course, as freelancers, right? We, we, we have to do a little bit of everything. But, you know, of course. Rather, rather than try to market myself as a, as a, you know, a screaming lead trumpet player, that's not me, you know, but it's I can play. It's actually not me either. To be I can play lyrically, you know, and oh, yeah. so I'll focus, I'll focus on that. Um, that's, that's advice that um, I, I can't remember right now. Someone said this on one of the major networks and it wasn't totally about music. It was maybe an actor. Um, the bottom line being that thing that they say, well, follow your heart and do what you love. Mm. He said, that's almost it. But mm. additionally, you should follow your heart, do what you love at something you're good at. Mm. Because a lot of people get frustrated by their love of music and their lack of interface with the instrument they chose. That can be really frustrating and, and heartbreaking. Go, go uh, into that a little bit more. Explain that yeah. a, a little deeper. Well, I've, I had some friends, uh, for instance, who were very good musicians and very creative and very knowledgeable and good ears and all that, who interfaced, they had pl been playing an instrument that was very difficult for them. And sometimes it was trumpet 
and actually made it into Eastman School of Music, for instance. Um, and they struggled a lot in terms of, I guess you could call it the com competition, but basically it was how did they stack up or they couldn't win auditions or they couldn't kind of make headway playing their instrument. Uh, some of them took totally different paths for their careers and some maybe switched instruments or started to do things in production or very, very entertainment oriented and were very happy because they found out, wow, I'm so good at producing. Mm -hmm. I'm a fantastic engineer and I know how to play. And um, there, of course, you can take a, a veer off into any, any career you want to right. imagine. And um, some of those people have become very successful and lots of them and play their instruments with great passion and fun. And they're not really interested in traveling, you know, uh, a thousand miles and playing with a high school band. Not that that's a bad thing, but and then running back to work the next day. They're not that interested in that kind of wear and tear on their body for their music, but they they're very active in the musical, mm -hmm. uh, in their musical um, community. And finding that balance takes some honesty with yourself, and it takes some, um, well, whatever you would call not being naive. You shouldn't let your naivete take over and think that you're going to, I, I hear some, I had one student as an example who said, when I first had him, I said, what would you like to do with your trumpet? Because he was majoring in sciences and getting straight A's down the board, some kind of sciences. And he said, well, I'd like to play in, a, in an orchestra in Europe. I said, well, that's really cool. Okay, here's what I want to do. Next time, bring in your C trumpet. Well, I don't have a C trumpet. Okay, well, bring in some excerpts and we'll work on B flat trumpet. What's an excerpt? Then it was time to have a little talk. And he turned out great, and he was glad he found out that, you know, mm -hmm. you don't just walk in and play with an orchestra. Because some people don't have a notion of these things, even though those of us in the trumpet world and, and in the semi-professional and professional world and the, and the university music world know the, know the, the uh, steps you have to go through to, to, to be playing a studio, to play in, a, in, an, in an orchestra, or to start your own career, or to do all those things and in, in make up big slices of the pie for your career, so. I've got a, a senior just graduating. Actually, she's got uh, an internship to, to do, uh, but okay. she's graduating in music theory. Uh, sorry, music therapy. Oh, yeah. But she came in music education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after a couple of years, realized eh, this, isn't, this isn't what I want to do. And thankfully, you know, she's found a path earlier than a lot of us do. You know, it might take yeah. us a while after college before we realize ah, I, I should be doing something else. But, you know, to see where she came in and she was really focused. She's extremely talented, yeah. but music ed was not her thing, you know, and yes. thankfully she found uh, music therapy and she's got the right disposition. She's, that is meant for her. So I, you know, I told her, I said, she's going to do, she's going to go really far. She's going to do well. And what a that. powerful and important area too. Right. And, and, oh my gosh, you know, you look at the need, uh, that's the a, need, that's yeah. a really growing area for that. So, and in the past decade, the scientific results of music therapy type things and neurobiology connection, it's fantastic how they work together. There's a, there's a James Morrison video of him playing, uh, yeah. trumpet, trumpet or flugelhorn with his right hand and bass with on the keyboard with his left hand. And this, that's right that old guy sitting there yeah, and, and all of a sudden he just comes to life. Right. And he's comping, yeah. I think he I, is with his right hand. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many times I've watched that video. It's you know, and, you can tear up watching that thing. Well, you know, and of course, you know, I'm sure James wasn't thinking I'm going to go in and do music therapy, but I mean, that's, that's a great example of, of what 
what can happen. Yeah. You know, and James is a music ambassador of all sorts. So, yeah. Yeah. I, that um, horn is, is probably one of those Shargle things that's all bent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure, but it looks yeah. like Shargle. Yeah. Have you ever played one of those? I I have just a few notes, and um, I think they're kind of cool in the sense. Um, if you've ever – now, here's me projecting after a few notes, you know, not really studying the instrument or playing it for very long. But if you put sort of a trumpet-shaped mouthpiece on a cornet, and it's a conical instrument. You can kind of rip all over the place with it, right? But the sound is funky. Um, I think it's kind of in that direction where it has more conical quality. But with a trumpet mouthpiece, it's probably it's a bit easier to play in a lot of ways. Well, I'm not talking about James. He could play a garden hose. Right. And sound, sound as good as anybody, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think those those rotary valves. And I don't know, maybe Yamaha doesn't want you talking about this sort of thing. But, uh, no, they don't, they, don't they don't care. Uh, well, I know I was, I was just kidding, but, uh, yeah, oh, those, okay. the, those rotary valves are, are terrific. Um, but there's so much good equipment out there. Um, yeah, holy maybe. cow. That was a, that was a huge left turn, uh, going from, you know, uh, me from memory care to, uh, to equipment. That's, um, the same, that's the way that I ski too. I have no plan. I just point downhill <laughs> and then, and then I don't pick my route and I make a few good choices and then crash. <laughs> uh so okay did you get to ski much this uh this past winter no i didn't uh mainly because maybe slopes weren't open uh oh yeah the covid year no no we didn't even make any trips or anything ah uh, yeah and and we can ski nearby here but they were all closed pretty much when yeah so no i haven't um been out for quite a while mm -hmm. uh, traveling at all uh fa a couple of family things and my mm -hmm. wife and i are both fully vaccinated which just is our peace of mind. Um, I don't know if the science, I don't believe the science is clear yet on whether a vaccinated person can carry the, the virus. So we try to be, um, we don't try to be, we are very cautious for other people as well. Sure. Um, but we have taken a couple of flights uh, to visit family. And then we had one recent uh, performance where we played with a small orchestra in Idaho. Um, soloing throughout the whole night and some pieces that I wrote or arranged and um, Laura played piano solo. I played trumpet solo and we played together, blah, blah, blah. And the hall allowed 50 people and there were 48 people in the orchestra plus the two of us. And so we've live streamed it. <laughs> oh, how fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've enjoyed thinking of recent performances. Of course, you've been doing these, uh, these covers of standards, right? You're sitting yeah, in your, your, your home studio and, uh, you know, I mean, that's fun. And it's not like the some of the pyrotechnics that that you know, you've put out there before. But man, it's it's really great. Like uh, was one note Samba, one of those that you did recently. Yes. Uh -huh. Really nice, you know, and that Thank put you. me back. That put me back on the cruise ship. Uh, <laughs> you know, sorry uh, about that. Uh, yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's OK. It's like, you know, the girl with emph emphysema and that you hear night yeah. after night after night. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, too, no, one note Samba is a one of the stellar sets of changes. It's really interesting. It's a little challenging and it's just a beautiful set of changes. Wow. Mm -hmm. But you said you're not a jazz player, but you still enjoy working, working through those, those changes, right? Working through tunes. Did I say that? Well, I thought maybe, Oh, earlier, maybe you were saying you're not like one of those. Uh, oh, you said you're not the high note guy. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. what it was. Well, yeah. Cause I was going to definitely your jazz player. Well, I, um, I have a realistic um, 
evaluation of my jazz playing, and it's it's not bad. Um, and I know the reasons that if you find the right Trump, you find the right instrumentalist in the right environment, growing up with the right people and the right teachers and the right music around you, how that can affect your life, as opposed to in the world of jazz, growing up in Wasp, Missoula, Montana, you know, with parents who were very musical, but like, I mean, love music, but it's mostly classical right. opera. Um, you get my perspective there and, 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 and the influences that can happen. Um, and I'm tr truthful about that. But one nice thing for me is when I, I play stuff, I get a little frustrated sometimes, but I think I'm still getting better at it. And, and um, my choices are better. And, you know, there are still a lot of challenges, but it's pretty fun to take those on. And there's no limit to what you can learn with music and trumpet and other instruments. So there's that. <laughs> See, to me, this, that, okay, this entire uh, uh, time with you tonight is worth that last 30 seconds right there. Oh, good. Well, you know, uh, we could roll credits right now. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, I love hearing that because, you know, it's like even Sergei or uh, who was that? Was it Pablo Casals? You know, they're talking about some of these, you know, why do you still practice when you're 90? He goes, well, I'm hoping to get better. That kind yeah. of, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter, you know, where you are, but this continual, uh, this uh, striving for excellence, always trying to learn something new, always trying to find something different. You know, I think, why wouldn't we do that? You know, we got to keep it interesting. We got to keep it fun. Yes, and propelling forward or moving forward as you get older is helps keep you young and alive and vibrant and busy. Um, I really feel for people who, you know, the metaphorical fabric uh, or uh, factory job, and then they retire, and then they're ill, and then they're gone. Um, people who are curious do well. Um, did you did you see the Doc Severinsen? It's never too late. Um, uh, I four times already. Four times. Only four? Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Well, his great line from that was, I'm a work in progress. Right. One of them. Yeah. Right. Which is in the same conversation as we're having. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to go back. Uh, you had said something earlier, and I realized um, I didn't know much about you before Eastman, but you had said that your dad had taught you to play trumpet. That's right. Uh, how old were you? And, I started and, when I was, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, how old were you? And, and like, what was the method? Did he, you know, make you sit down and? Oh, yeah. Um, there was no real method. Um, my dad owned a music store. He, I was seven. Um, he just, he played a little trumpet around the house, basically. He seldom played in public. And he had a little bit of a performance anxiety problem that he never quite figured out. So he didn't really enjoy playing in public much, although a handful of times. When he was in high school and, um, well, university age, he ended up going, you know, World War II was happening. So he became a soldier in, in the 10th Mountain Division in Italy. But um, so he, he taught me in sort of the old school of starting. In other words, you buzz your lips and um, you make a sound and you kind of start working from the resources, he had taken some lessons with a, a person named Gibson who was teaching at the University of Montana. And this person had a book and he wasn't, he, I didn't know anything about him and there's not much that I found about him. Um, I've looked at the book and it's mostly text, so it, it's kind of okay. Anyway, 
uh, dad did a lot of research and he was a good student type person. He would study things that he wanted to do as well as do them. And so he had, he would dig up um, information and bring home, he brought home Charlier and French horn books of book published by Alphonse Leduc and clarinet etudes. Of course, not the first, not when I was seven, but um, <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of literature he would throw at me and, and um, because he had a music store with the books and stuff in there and I would take real good care of him. He'd just take them back, stamp them and then put them back on the shelf, you know, or I would keep them. I, I still have a, a Charlier book from that period that's almost just falling apart in my hands. <laughs> um, so to, to better answer your question was, I don't remember exactly. I remember making my first sound and giggling because, oh, there it was, you know, on a cornet. I was teeny. I couldn't reach the end of a trumpet yeah. for, a year, for a few years. When we had a, in grade school band, when we had that boop, pop, boop, pop part, I had to use a, like a paper card to reach around the end. Uh, and, um, and I was all concerned about that, as kids would be. But I, anyway. Sure. Um, what I do remember specifically, though, was his... Um, his persistence with listening and the sound, listen to the sound and make it something you like and make it bigger. And um, he liked opera. He didn't talk about singing much, but he liked to listen to a lot of opera. And I think that helped, even when he was a child in the, in the mountains of Montana with his sisters, they used to listen to the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts that were on by radio when they were um, on Sunday afternoons and that's one time the family would gather, the Italian family, and listen to the broadcast. My aunt, who lived in the sticks of Montana her entire life, knew more about opera and libretto than I ever knew. And to this day, she would know more than I do. I would ask her questions from Eastman School about opera when I had to have some kind of <laughs> test or something. And uh, I think that notion of sound helped establish a fundamental that would not come from playing lip slurs or even long tones. If you're not really, if you're not trying to project a big, beautiful round sound, he didn't use all those words, but he kind of persisted while we're on the, what you learn when, when your dad teaches you, if you get along. And for the most part, we got along great. I mean, once in a while I was a snot, but sure. Uh, yeah. But, um, basically he persisted with, um, uh, that, all that, mm -hmm. and we got through all that, but he also was there, right? Um, a good dad, we go fishing. My have a brother, had a brother and sister, whatnot. And he would, I liken it to a boat that's going down a canal. And if it's drifting down and, and, and you touch it a little bit, very often it'll stay right in the middle, you know. But if you wait a week, it's going to clang into the side and then you got to undo that and fix it. Well, I was practicing. And so every day he would have something to say for five or 10 minutes, pr pretty much every day. And I did want to practice um, after the first few months. Like I was lazy the first few months or just not that interested. Because I remember the probably six or eight months in him going like, look, if you want to play well, you got to sit, you got to learn. Um, I think it was the fingerings, actually. You got to learn those fingerings and sit down and start mm -hmm. practicing. And I did because I was starting to get feedback that was good, too, at, at school and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he guided me with these little touches very often, but we also had a, an hour, 45 minute or an hour a week lesson for many years. And then in high school, we would play, well, junior high age, kind of early high school, maybe six, 15, 16 years old. We would play a lot of duets also. And he, he could play the, the Arvin duets and 
Um, he, he wasn't a rangy player, but he had good technique and nice sound. He liked Harry James, for instance. Who Not doesn't? a big jazz guy, but he wasn't a big jazz guy at all, but he, uh, he liked jazz on the sort of white society level, mm-hmm. like Harry James was. Although Harry James was hipper than like Paul Whiteman or something <laughs> like that, and much better trumpet player than people give him credit for sometimes. Anyway, we would play these duets, and I remember one day him going like, okay, oh, I know what we were doing. We were playing etudes, and we would play a page or maybe a Car- Arben characteristic study, and then he, the other guy would play it, and we'd talk about who did it better. So he, I was kind of, he was making me comfortable talking about it, all the aspects of playing it when it wasn't good mm-hmm. and even commenting on what he did or whatever. And um, I was not a, an outgoing or pushy kid, so it was, I think it was pretty easy for him to handle it, whatever. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as if I was going to acting school or something like that, you know, as far <laughs> as exuberance. Um, and I remember, finally, I, I, I'll end, um, he said, Okay, I think that's enough of that. You can just play it alone now, you know. Nice. But the lessons continued. Then shortly thereafter, Doc Severinsen visited my town. Other soloists, Mendez visited before that. Um, before I was in the groups to play with this soloist, Mendez visited. I heard him live. Al wow. Hurt came through once. Um, and then there was a university band with a couple of decent players. There was a guy uh, named John Wilson who ended up playing first in one, I believe, the Navy band. Uh, the Navy uh, I don't know if it was the Commodores. I guess it was. Is it the Navy Commodores? Yeah. Anyway, yes. he played first in that jazz ensemble for a while and connected with me again years and years later when he came back to Missoula. But um, So there were some influences there. Some of it I didn't understand, and my mind was a little shocked by hearing a big band. The military band came through Missoula once and played at the university, and I went. And when, when I was hearing these lead trumpet notes in high G and F, big as a house, I didn't understand it. I didn't know how that was done. <laughs> Uh, my dad got me a book once that was, uh, I still have it. It's a French Alphonse Le Duc publication. It's nice. Of all the first or most of the first trumpet parts to the Bach. Um, oh, right. Adas and Brandenburg and uh, the, the B minor mass and the Magnificat and those pieces. And um, when I looked at the Brandenburg, I remember my dad and I studying it and going, why is this not in D like the rest of it? How is the transposition right? Because it would be so high. Mm-hmm. Can this be correct? Is it a misprint? Because it's the only one in the book like this. It baffled us for a while till we did some research. And then I couldn't believe, how do you play this thing? I didn't know there was even with a piccolo trumpet. Makes it sound kind of backwoodsy. I mean, my dad sold instruments and he knew a lot, but somehow we didn't quite make that connection in, um, with what was possible. And th- there are later stories about I jumped in with both feet on piccolo and took the Brandenburg Concerto on a professional gig before I could play it and had three work. We, I think I told us. You, you did. Other. You told me uh, yeah. Venny, Venny stepped in, right? Yeah, he, he told me how to back <laughs> off and play right. Correctly. Right. <laughs> and it worked fine. But um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's a very unique and wonderful thing to have spent with your and a supportive mother with your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, very unique. And I feel sorry for not musicians, but kids who don't have happy childhoods and connected connection like that, because it shapes your life, you know? Well, it's funny you say that, you know, I've just finished this Suzuki trumpet training. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's, 
it's all about that. You know, of course, not just Suzuki Trumpet, but Suzuki in general is about yeah. that, providing that atmosphere, uh, you know, surrounding and nurturing and, uh, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, not to go off on the whole thing right now, but <laughs> I mean, but that's, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I wish that could be the situation for everybody. And yeah. not just not just for music, right? I mean, just to grow to oh, be a, no, no, a, a no. good person, right? And yeah. so, um, well, we have to just carve out what we can in our little corner of the world. And some mm -hmm. people will do big things like Bill Gates Foundation or something, and right. great great groups like there's a place here called Amara, which is a helps foster children, especially difficult to foster children because of age or whatnot. And some of us do small things consistently helping one student at a time that's all good. well yeah even think about herb alpert right and <laughs> and his uh what's the word uh phil foundation philanthropy is philanthropy, that the right yeah. word yeah you know i mean it's just uh, people who give back like that you know it's just uh, it's it's fantastic yeah i, I want to go back to uh uh chris Padala. it popped back into my head uh, the very first live concert well that's not true i i heard my first opera in 1972, um, but my first real concert that I remember going to by choice um, was Chuck Me and Joan in 1970, oh, yeah. 1979. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, I had the Feel So Good album and hearing, hearing Chris uh, play on there. Of course, Chuck surrounded himself with just great players, but Chris yes. was ridiculous. I, you know. Yeah, Chris. Chris was he could have played with you know um, name your name your band. I mean heavyweight right. jazz. We did quite a few school concerts together and some pro ones where we were both there. We loved to play together, but yeah, he was just scary good and he related to other people, particularly the students, in a really powerful way that they just loved having him. Mm -hmm. And um, he graduated from Eastman a year or two only before me no he graduated one year before i got there um so i didn't meet him till he came back to play in rochester at eastman with a larger group because chuck would do concerts with orchestra and big band both same music as usual um and i would be in the orchestra with jeff tyzik and maybe arnie tchaikovsky from toronto or something like that sometimes al persino way back and uh, that was Jerry Nywood playing sax first, and then and uh, on a couple of the early recordings, of mm -hmm. course, and then Chris, and then Chris stayed with them for years and years and years. It was a it was a uh, a wild ride for Chris too. Yeah, thinking about the Eastman years, and to think, you know, of course, Phil Collins went through there. Were you? Yeah. Were you there? Did you guys no, he, he cross over? Uh, but of course, you, Vinny, um, uh, Tyzik, of course. And yeah. I mean, just the, the number of, well, of course, the many great players, not just in your era, you know, that, that have come out of there. Uh, okay, so that was a huge left turn with, uh, with Chris, but I <laughs> wanted to mention that before I forgot. But okay, so we're gonna go back to, uh, to your dad. At what point did he think, I need to pass you off to another teacher? Or did that just happen when you got to college? Yes, it pretty much happened when I got to college. Although, uh, other than just, I would say by the time I was a senior in high school, he wasn't hands off, but we, he, we weren't having um, regular lessons as I remember it. I do remember though, during high school that he made up earlier years, like freshman time, he made a weekly handwritten 
schedule for me to practice pages this that he went through the uh, the standard books that we use and some that you may not have heard of well you've probably heard of all of them yourself sigmund herring and mm. those etude books and things right. uh cole prosh um and then the heavyweight stuff saint jacomb's um method arbin and the french things mm -hmm. and charlie and he made a list of things i should practice and he told me later that he just kept writing larger and larger lists just to see what I would do because he, he didn't think I'd get through half of it. And I would just plow through this stuff, not, not meaning that I would go through and not take any care with it, but I would study the things I was supposed to. And as a kind of a sidebar or the, uh, maybe an important factor, I was enjoying improving. You would notice improvement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you play for a long time, over a long period of time, and you don't see much improvement because it's so gradual. And you think, wow, I'm not getting anywhere. Right. <laughs> but if you were, if you had taped yourself or you had some point of reference to the year before, you might have gotten fairly uh, significant amount better and not kind of realized it because you're so one can be very critical about yourself, you know. Sure. So anyway, um, by the time I was headed to Eastman, I had spent the year, the summer before at Interlock in Michigan. And um, that was a summer camp. At the time, it was eight weeks long, which was a long time. But it was, it was an amazing experience. So they were, my parents were trying to get me involved. I went two summers to that camp, actually, to get me involved, not only to help me grow and learn and get experience with better players and all that, but also to kind of make sure that I could take it in terms of performance, nerves, and, mm. and work ethic. And I was possibly going to succeed at it we didn't know but we never sat down with me meaning as opposed to my brother and sister mm -hmm. um with i never sat down with my parents and decided where what um what subject to major in in school from i remember from as early as i can remember it was going to be music and they were even on board with me not taking a music education degree mm -hmm. they got all kinds of <clears throat> advice from ex from professors at the University of Montana and people that we knew had a couple of whom had actually been to Eastman School of Music themselves, um, that you might want to get an ed degree because, you know, they right. always said something to fall back on, something to fall back on. And in my mind, it was, I really don't want to worry about something to fall back on. I just want to go for this. How many times have I heard that in, in the last decade or so? If somebody says, Million. you know, if, if you have to think that you need something to fall back on, maybe you're not focused enough on the, the main thing right now, right? Yeah, if, you hear that about actors and all kinds of people, yeah. Yeah. So ha, were you composing at all at, at this point? No. Well, it just, I started, I started noodling around and really I didn't, I wrote one unaccompanied piece uh, in high school and one piece with piano that was kind of goofy and played it for the student body with some other, you know, at, at an event where the students did things, entertained. And the piece that I wrote in high school that was um, um, an unaccompanied piece turned into Cascades later. Oh. Meaning the whole first section was that I had figured that out and it was fun to play and use that. But to answer your question directly, no, not till Eastman, and then I jumped in with both feet because I really liked it. The opportunity was there to get performed as quickly as you could write. Remember, no computers, so writing quickly <laughs> was not re really quick because also a major part of your time was to copy all the parts if it was a big ensemble. Right, and, and, then, and then have to fix the parts 
you know. Fix them, and, make changes, <laughs> yeah. Notation had to be clear and correct or you couldn't get it played. If it was good enough, when, which many, many student compositions were really cool, because you, you know that college time when you have no boundaries? Um, there's some cool music that comes out. I remember I did my master's at Butler University, and there was a good friend yeah. of mine. <clears throat> he was a composition major who uh, I found out was camping out in the practice room next to me when I would warm up. And so he wrote this unaccompanied piece. Well, it was for trumpet and, and uh, narrator. Okay. But, you know, he said, okay, I've got this piece ready. You'll do it on my recital, right? And I said, sure. And he showed it to me. Well, it was like all the stuff you do in a warm up that you never oh. think. Right. You, you know, you do these these wide skips and, and yeah. I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can only pull this off <laughs> you know, when I in the first 20 minutes of the day. But, uh, you know, but at least uh, he was listening. You know, a lot of times, you know, I think yeah. some of these some of these people are sitting at the piano, you know, writing for trumpet and they're yeah. like, oh, you can you can do a two octave jump. You know, and oh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or 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 never take the horn off their face, right? Which to me is that's the biggest thing is you know, give a us a chance. Classic era for uh, especially non-wind players when they would write for jazz ensemble, for instance, a piano player would write a whole fifty bars of whole notes for pad, pads, <laughs> and not realize that we needed a bar off here and there. But those things, you, I tapped into that stuff as quickly as I could because I understood the value of it, and I really wanted to use uh, to grow enough to really use composition forever and to maybe make some money at it and maybe to write for myself and maybe to write for other people and maybe to have some stuff recorded or played on television, which all of that has happened to some degree. And um, I still try work really hard on the pedagogical aspect of, aspect of each instrumental part. And, um, and I am not above a redo of something if it, I believe that if there's a passage, for instance, that's really nice music, but it's just got a little thing in there that makes the player not like it, that it's worth changing. That doesn't mean you can't have challenges, but if you have challenges that make sense to a player, they'll rise to it and figure it out and enjoy it. But if you've written challenges that are just stupid, because I've had music written for me that was so stupid that I, uh, I actually would succumb. If I had to play the piece, I would just be beat up by the end. And I don't just mean high and loud, it's just awkward and scary because you're gonna chip notes in a recording trying to do this strange E flat trumpet part or something. Those things happen. But anyway, I'm kind of rambling now. Mm. But um, yeah. So composition is a big part of my life, actually, and I really like it. Are, are you working on something right now? Always. Always. <laughs> no, pretty much always. I do yeah. take some breaks. Uh, you might be interested to know that um, I finished recently a 15-minute piano piece in four movements, and um, I finished a work that I have been working on for more than about two decades because it's a labor of love and I just worked on it when I felt like it. And I finished the composition of, it's four movements. I finished the composition of, um, of two of the movements and the orchestration of the whole piece in the last year and a half or so. And it is actually a piano concerto with symphony. See, okay, it didn't occur to me that you would write something that wouldn't feature trumpet. You and most everybody else, right? So, uh, so does Laura? Does she? Does she get pages every day? Like, okay, try this. See if this works. No, no, she has not looked at the music. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So I haven't run it by uh, her or any other pianist in terms of. I'm pretty confident it's going to mostly there'll be a little thing here and there because I'm not a pianist. 
But the way I work through things with my hands when, when I've composed things, um, I'm, I've studied it, studied it. I've probably spent more time on this piece than any other, just by choice, because it's a labor of love too, and also on the orchestration. But I, you can go through and place your hands where the, the notes have to go and realize they can do some big skips and things, but if it's illogical or awkward, harmonically certain things change, the level of actually changes, the level of accuracy changes, and the level of enjoyment changes. And I try to come up with things that, one of my techniques for piano is to come up with things that I like the sound of that are really, I can almost play them <laughs> for a few beats, you know? <laughs> right. And if I can do that, then a good pianist can just sail through it. Mm -hmm. So anyway. There's that I, kind of thought. I, I asked Jim Stevenson uh, something about that, you know, about uh -huh. being able to play, uh, play the part, and uh, he freely admits that he cannot, uh, he cannot do that, uh, the piano part. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, I'm thinking uh, Rachmaninoff, uh, who, as far as uh, those composers who had all those great piano works, is there anybody like that that inspires you? You think about the way they orchestrate? Is that something you try to follow or you just your, your own listen, style no when, no well i follow my own style totally as a melodic and harmonic content but um in general terms like uh, glistening or ripping and tearing or very vertical meaning chords or very horizontal or wow that's the only unison meaning it's not it's so powerful it's just unison unison is a really amazing tool compositionally and if you start paying attention to things like that when you listen, because Laura and I listen to music or we'll go to a concert. I mean, not so much COVID, but during COVID. But we, when we go to concerts that are not uh, orchestra with pianists or whatever, she loves to go to concerts and I go with her pretty often. Um, she has some friends she goes with too. And I do study the composition, uh, meaning I really observe a lot. And from a compositional point of view, I guess, and a technical mm -hmm. point of view. And uh, there are certain things that are true that I can write for trumpet in different ways than a person who doesn't play. And a pianist can write for a piano in different ways than I can. There's total truth to that. But you just try to come up with something cool. And yeah. I like melody too, so I don't get insane with the goofiness. Well, I, I don't know. I might have to disagree with that. You know, after hearing uh, Three World Winds the first time, and, yeah. and I don't mean goofy, but I mean, holy cow, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, well, e even going back to Cascades, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. those are jaw-dropping compositions the first time you hear them. And, you know, the, the cool thing is after these many years of, you know, I'll open it up on occasion and work through it. It's like, oh, I can finally play that lick, <laughs> you know, or, or yeah. at some point you realize, oh, that's just a pentatonic, right? Yeah. You, or you realize the pattern, whatever it is. It's but, a valve but, combination pattern a lot of yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it sounds good, right? I mean, it works. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a little left turn I'll make here that's a, a tangential, and that is uh, when I wrote my books. It's now 30 years, 31 years ago. It was published. The three books. Are you kidding? It's really been that long. I know. And new concepts is uh, from 1991. Oh my gosh. No, that's that's the method book. The new 2024 or something like that. Mm. It's decade later. Um, my point being that there were things I put in there that have not been put in other books that are kind of specific moves on the horn. They're not used that much, but it, mm -hmm. it expands your capabilities when you work on things that are challenging, right? But things that would have been called, um, maybe not impossible, but 
but it's really very difficult. I hear coming out of college practice rooms because the book's been out that long. Well, even go back to St. Jacome, right? I remember yeah. uh, working through the, the uh, Arben characteristic studies and thinking, holy cow, you know, these are hard. And then the first time you look at St. Jacome and, you know, it's like two pages, three pages of just nonstop. And I remember I actually discovered St. Jacome because of Doc. He said, you know, okay. I remembered if I could make it through uh, one of those St. Jacome studies without stopping and taking the horn off my face, I'd be in good shape. So I thought, <laughs> oh, I've had this book forever. You know, I went and opened it up. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, and you know, they're not rangy, right? Uh -huh. But I mean, there's technique and well, I mean, you've nice got to learn, yeah. you've got to learn to pace yourself, right? You got to learn to play yeah. efficiently. You got to learn to lift off sometimes when you can. That's yeah. a whole other story. You know, I have a question here in the chat. Yeah. Says what inspired me to uh, tune such a zigzag in the double tonguing of octaves? Um, I would say experimentation for the double tonguing of octaves, meaning uh, the Arben book has these intervallic and I used to wonder how how far can I go up the scale, for instance, and keep hitting a C, say on, on the bottom part, go beyond what's marked in the book. And I, I started to think that way about a lot of the exercises in the books. Um, in actual fact, as famous and classic as Arben is, I, I think it's fairly limited in a lot of ways too. And so I decided just because I was a geeky trumpet player and get, having some success moving forward, I'm trying to do more of that sort of thing. Um, and then, Similarly, how what kind of octaves like a lot of people play toka, 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 on a fifth or a third or something. And I said, well, what can I do? And I know what I can manage and not manage at this, even to this day, in terms of repetition, like an interval that goes and goes, because there are going to be limits, at least for each individual, some limit, right? And I discovered the sound of this octave thing, which I started to put into cadenzas. Um, I remember in 1975 writing a piece for trumpet, uh, a concerto of three movements called Snow Scenes for trumpet and orchestra for, with the Rochester Philharmonic. They actually commissioned me as a, as a uh, first year grad student to write and play this piece for uh, several holiday concerts. So it just had to have kind of a winter theme. Mm -hmm. They said, I don't care what you write. You could write White Christmas for all I care, but just write what you feel like. And that was really a cool opportunity, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I put double tongue octaves in it. And I've only used that sort of thing, though, where I'm playing it. I don't expect anyone else to do it. And and when other players have played that piece I just mentioned, Snow Scenes, I suggest that they do what they want there. It can be a lip slur. It can be double-tonguing. The audience doesn't care. The audience right. likes just as much as they like, you know, all that nonsense. Or they just want the flow of sound to work. So anyway, uh, that's how the double-tonguing octave, double octave things started to happen. Zigzag was, I don't remember the inspiration for the actual line. I can reimagine because I had a really good band at the time and I liked the idea of this groove. And I wanted to have a couple tunes that were real exciting, not too long and showed more of my style than, than just uh, a style that everyone used, let's say. This is just fast, fast fusion music, but Again, it's that octave kind of skipping, you know, and in the middle of it, I put those were octaves. Yeah, you can find zigzag. In fact, one of the um, pretty decent recordings from the 80s is on YouTube. You know, but.
but this is the kind of writing that that pushes us to all you know step it up right i mean you're talking about hearing stuff in the in the college practice rooms yeah. these days right i mean yeah but it, it wouldn't be there if you weren't writing stuff like that or if sergey wasn't you know doing the stuff that he was doing you know or uh, other people were pushing the boundaries of of writing you know jim stevenson of course i mentioned uh pete meachin uh so it's you know, I, I like that those people, including yourself, are, are putting those challenges out there for us, right? It just... Yeah. I do, yes, yes. I just want people to know that I've always been conscious of differentiating between the pieces I really designed for myself, not because I'm better than anyone else. It's just that I want to do certain things and give it a shot. And it challenges me and keeps me uh, have a little uniqueness of recognizability and things now and then. Yeah. A dragonfly is another one of those on flute horn that flies all over the place from the rainbow album. Um, and I, I want people to know that I really, when I write for someone else, when I wrote, wrote uh, the three world wins for Rex Richardson, a commission that he wanted, um, I definitely keep in mind that he's a great trumpet player and I'm just not going to write stupid stuff that makes him not want to play the piece for one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, also, it's just the right thing to do. There are challenges, but he, he loves, um, right. he likes doing it and he, and he can burn it down. So yeah. Right. <laughs> um, Morris Northcutt has a comment. It, you, Morris is right up there in the Pacific Northwest with you. Do you know Morris? Actually, no. I'm oh sorry. my gosh. You, you have to meet Norris. Uh, and first of all, uh, Morris, thanks for being here again tonight. Morris is a, a Patreon supporter of Studio HFL. So again, thank you. There's a shout out yeah. to you, Morris. Uh, thanks for your continued support. But Morris is a Con Selmer artist an amazing trumpet player and uh you guys should definitely connect but his question and forgive me i'm wearing bifocals which is why i keep doing the old guy thing well don't do that uh well my eyes were tired and i had to take my contacts out <laughs> morris uh he says hey from tacoma sorry if this was already asked are you teaching virtual lessons if so have you experienced any benefits there are plenty of negatives of course yes i do teach some virtual lessons if you're interested, bazooti.com, you can send me an email. Um, feel free to. Are there any negatives? There are plenty of negatives. Are there any? Oh, I see that question. Experience any benefits? Mm -hmm. Well, not really in terms of what we're doing in lesson format. Um, you, you know, playing duets is almost impossible, at least with the Zoom, Zoom platform. Um, the trumpet sound is often really dumb or just not working or people have their things set so that so that the limiter comes in and cuts it out or it's distorted because they're too close um I, th I guess the benefits would be the obvious things you can teach anyone in the world and you don't have to go anywhere and that's about it <laughs> well you know but think about it from the student side you get access to some of to a teacher or performer you may have never been able to get access to before, course, right? Yeah. You know, uh, if you wanted to study, uh, uh, Andre Tofanelli comes to mind. Yeah. You know, you know I mean, who's going to... sweetheart he is. Right? You know, uh, but, you know, what's it going to cost wow. you to get to Italy uh, oh, yeah, and, totally. and, and get a lesson? You know, but now you can, uh, I don't know if Andre is teaching, but probably, right? Um, I agree totally. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you know in, the, in the world of friends and colleagues, uh, several times I've gotten together with other players who you know their names, and just to chat or talk about a playing thing or have an idea or just to goof around a little bit, um, that's a definite benefit too that's tangential to the teaching. But 
true. Well, even, time to zoom there, Morris. Even platforms like this, right? I mean, you and I yeah. spending time here tonight, and of course, you know, there are so many others that have uh, that have been out there. Um, well, and and not even just podcast. I noticed, didn't you do a master class last night? Uh, yeah, for for a group in Chile, I put a, I put the uh, yes, I put the Zoom link out there on Instagram, but I think it was a pay event, so people might not have been able to get in. But still, you know, the the thing is, well, you just said Chile. I mean, you know, how could they have gotten you during the pandemic if not yeah. for for the virtual aspect? Of yeah, there've been so. some international things for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm looking at, of course, uh, ITG coming up, and I'm kind of wondering how ITG is going to do doing virtual uh, because, you know, we trumpet players are such uh, such social animals, right? I mean, we really thrive oh, on yeah, that. Oh, yeah, the hang is a lot of the fun for sure. Right, I mean, you, know, you know. It won't be the same. It won't be even close, but hopefully there'll be some ins inspirational things about um, all the videos that will be posted. Um, I just... I'm about to put the finishing touches on mine, which is almost an hour long. Mm -hmm. Well, this and, is a this is a good push for that then, because I know JC and Grant and and all those yeah. people have been working so hard, yeah. and, and kind of in an impossible situation, right? To to try to make something, right? We don't want to go another yeah. year without uh, without an ITG. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to do my best, you know, to get there. And of course, the nice thing about this too is you said you're making a video, which means that. If you miss the live or you miss the premiere, it'll be archived, right? I believe that it's going to be, uh, for those that register, it'll be available to watch. Yeah, mm -hmm. at, kind of at your leisure. I, I, did, I, didn't remember, I didn't know what they did last summer, but um, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that it's going to be mm -hmm. available so you don't have to sit at your computer at a certain time on a certain day. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to Morris Northcutt for a second. Uh, yeah. And, uh, talking about videos, because you need to get on Morris's social media. Morris, uh, his, his sound, He's a Rafael Mendez fan. Um, now he doesn't have that vibrato, right? He's got a beautiful <laughs> vibrato, but he doesn't have yeah. Rafael. But um, no, you should you should check him out. Um, we did meet. We did meet when uh, with oh, the good. Tacoma, Tacoma good. concert band. Um, yeah. and, and I'm I'm anxious for travel to open up again because you know Morris yeah. uh, will want to have another cup of coffee with him <laughs> at some All point. Right. But uh, let's see any other comments down here. Uh, I don't know what Sebastian's asking when he says, what do you think of fashion? I, I, I mean, are you a Versace kind of guy? Only when it's on sale. <laughs> You're not it's, like Jens and paying $700 for those, those shirts, are you? Yeah, no surprise. I actually have something I'll share about fashion. I'm knocking around the house in my jeans and stuff most times. I think you should dress for the, for the situation for sure. I think you should have some one or two things that are really nice. Um, I think you should have a decent pair of shoes to wear on stage and in front of people because I've seen so many players, brass quintets and in orchestras and bands have a tuxedo or something and terrible shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yes, I like to take I like to take in the, a step in the Severinsen direction with some unusual um, yet, I'll say, elegant concert wear. Yes. Well, you're making a statement. I mean, we're both both ways. I, I'm thinking about Tina Helseth, who plays barefoot. Yes. yes. Right. I mean, she doesn't have to worry about shoes. Oh, I see. I didn't. Actually yeah. Know. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And this I like has her playing though. 
Alan Vizzuti, are you posting this question? Who's who's posting these? Because it says no, I'm not. It says your name on there. Um, I love the Eastman Brass Quintet 1975 album, particularly the last track, Sweet for Brass Quintet, March. What was it like to rehearse and record with the Eastman Brass faculty? Any good stories? Who is that? Is that my daughter lives in Italy, but she'd be in bed now. I wonder. Uh, whoever's posting under Alan Vizzuti, um, if you could identify yourself, that would be that would be nice. That would Unless be your name really is Alan Vizzuti, and what a coincidence! Yeah, that wow, would that'd be, be right? a first. Yeah. Well. So, uh, what about that? Uh, the Eastman Eastman Brass Quintet. What was the that like? Brass Quintet was one of my very profoundly wonderful experiences. I got in there went this summer before my sophomore year faculty brass quintet. It was a well-oiled machine back mm -hmm. before the Canadian brass. If you're in a time like that, it sounds prehistoric. But the concert, <laughs> the concerts we played were very serious, even when we should have been more pop oriented in small towns, because we did we did do tours and some international touring. Um, we played Alvin Etler and Gunther Schuller and, and the, all the Vern Reynolds modern stuff and all, all of his Chintonis, which are Renaissance music, fabulous arrangements, his original handwriting. He was the French horn player in the group. Mm. Um, if you don't know him, he has a wonderful etude book originally for French horn for, and for trumpet. He has many great compositions. They're very difficult, well-written, unusual style of his own contemporary. His brass quintet, his first one is quite famous because it's real tonal and a lot of nice movements. And then his music gets more and more wild. We recorded that stuff at the Eastman Theater and um, it, it, we recorded also um, an album with percussion. I don't know if Summit Brass has that or not. So we recorded a, an album with uh, um, brass quintet and piano with Barry Snyder playing uh, piano. He still teaches at Eastman and a brass quintet and percussion with John Beck playing, who has retired from Eastman. And the music is really worth listening to. It was a great experience. It ruined Brass Quintet for me, though, because these guys were so in tune and so accurate and so consistent and worked. I just had to fit it into a, as a new member um, into the, like a cog into a working machine, you know? Like you replaced one of the gears in a Ferrari trans, trans, transmission. And it was challenging and difficult, but man, anyway, it was a really great experience. We didn't get a lot of notoriety. In fact, the albums that you're talking about um, is very recently released. Me, I mean, uh, like in the 90s or something, and it was recorded in 75. Just so couldn't get a deal or anything. You're talking about, you know, you, you guys played really well together, but what was the vibe? I mean, did you feel like uh, a part of that group when you came in because of the age difference, the experience difference? When I was in rehearsal with them at the school or performance at the school sometimes or on the road, I was just a colleague. The age was not a factor. Mm -hmm. um, they would be themselves. They understood that if they acted goofy or said some things, you know, about somebody or whatever, that it was not going to get back in the school atmosphere to, it was sort of what stays in our group, stays in our group. Although there wasn't a lot of nattering or nastiness. It was just the, the, this staunch professor types would let their hair down sometimes. Right. And it was pretty funny. Um, I was too young to drink, so they, you know, on, on a night off or after a gig, they drink like crazy sometimes. It is hilarious mm -hmm. because all of a sudden I'm the one who's sane. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, the atmosphere was fine and it never was a problem. Yeah. Um, are, are any of those uh, others still around or do you stay in contact with, with any of them? They're not. They're all gone. No. 
Well, Cherry Beauregard, the tubist, moved to Utah, and we only had a couple. He was a one, he is a wonderful person. He might still be around. I haven't been in contact with him. But Dan Patrick, the trumpet, first trumpet player, uh, Donald Knob, the bass trombone player, and Vern Reynolds, the French horn player, have all. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all deceased. Mm -hmm. They live pretty long, but yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, Sebastian says thank you. It looks like for answering his question. Um, Oh, David Wolf, uh, going back to, to Doc. David um, is a friend of mine here in Indianapolis, another trumpet player, uh -huh. of course, and a uh, uh, really good friend. David, thanks for being here. Every, actually, everybody, thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm looking at the time. I want to respect your respect your time, but, uh, you Thank know, you. I feel like we could go forever. Uh, but we're not, we're not going to. You know, we got to leave well, something we'll out there, the right? I, I, well, yeah. thank you. I'd love to hear that. Um, so, Alan, uh, hang on one second. I'm going to kind of wrap things up. Okay. And, oh, I, I got to tell you, and I'll say this in front of everybody else, too. We came, my wife and I came up with another T-shirt idea, and spe specifically for interviews like these. Yeah. I said something, uh, one of us is going to regret this conversation. <laughs> and she says, you need to print that and, and send it to your guest, and you both wear it during the interview. Right? <laughs> so it's clever. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so now, you know, it's out there, so it's going to have to have to be done. It's going to have to happen. have to be done. So, all right. So, uh, everybody, thank you so much for joining uh, me and Alan here tonight. And, of course, thanks to Trent Austin and Austin Custom Brass for sponsoring tonight and the rest of May. Of course, next week, we've got Mary Elizabeth Bowden. That's May 11th. Uh, Wayne Bergeron, May 18th. Bijan Watson, May 25th. All again at 8 p.m streaming live and um, let's see uh, the WICR 88.7 FM radio show this week is going to feature Mike Williams. It's part two. Uh, next week is uh, Carol Don Reinhardt. That was a great interview. I don't know if you've ever met Carol Allen. But, I have. Oh my gosh. What a sweet, what a sweet, yeah, sweet person. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'm trying to think who else I've got at the end of the month, but anyways, you can always go to studiohfl.com and find out all that information. And of course, uh, sign up for the newsletter where you can stay up to date. I don't deluge everybody's mailbox. It's once a week, you get a newsletter once a week. So uh, again, thanks for being here. Thanks for supporting Studio HFL and for hearing from our very own legend, Alan Vizzuti here tonight. Um, so again, thanks. And Alan, don't go anywhere. I'm gonna sign off everybody. Thanks, and, everyone. Yeah, see you next time. All right.